Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You know when you get to talk to people who are really passionate about what they're doing? Well, that's what comes across in this interview that I did with Dr. Duncan Sutherland and Dr. Jessica Nelson at the Phillip Island Nature Park, where we talk about shearwaters and this huge migration that happens in about April, May every year. And the campaign that they ran, which was uh, Dark Skies So Shearwaters Fly, uh, and it incorporated the local community and a lot of great minds and a lot of hard effort just to make sure that these fabulous birds took off, took flight and made their way all the way to the Northern Hemisphere in one single swoop. Enjoy. Hi. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads, or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or whatever time it is that you're listening to Dark Sky Conversations. I'm so excited to talk to my guests. Yes, plural guests today. First time we've had two people to talk about their areas of expertise. Um, and this time, and particularly around a campaign regarding shearwaters and dark skies, and I'm going to let them explain exactly all that, how it, how that comes to, to be. But I might get you to introduce yourself first, Duncan. Duncan, you're Duncan Sutherland from now. Is it the um, islands, Phillip Island National Park? Oh, sorry, gosh. Phillip Island Nature Parks. Great. Uh, so I, I'm the the deputy research director for the nature parks, and have a background in short-tailed shearwater uh, research, and uh, a real passion for uh, this species and how they interact in the world that we live in. Uh, your your um, profile says that you're a, a modeler, a population modeler. Is that? Is that... Well, I have a background in modeling, so I've spent a bit of time looking at various populations. In fact, I started off with small mammal populations and trying to understand why they increase or decrease, what drives species and, and populations to, to change over time. And I've sort of switched over the, the years and expanded that to actually worked a little bit on some of the predators that uh, small mammals and other uh, Australian wildlife uh, are facing, particularly those pest animals. Mm -hmm. And I've even played around with some large uh, lizards, um, <laughs> predators, goannas and the like, and trying to understand how they uh, work in, in, in their forested ecosystems. And then that's actually morphed a bit, and I've, I've really started focusing over the last decade or so on island ecosystems 
And seabirds are around a critical feature of a lot of these island ecosystems, mm. be they penguins, shearwaters, and various other small uh, avian species, other birds, mm. and really try to understand how island ecosystems work so we can deal with some of the threats that islands are, have unique features to them. And they, they miss some elements of ecosystems, but they get in others. And the seabirds are a, a real feature on islands because we don't have as many uh, predators on islands often. So yeah. it changes the dynamic there, which is really, uh, really fascinating. It has been banded by water or, or a barrier of some kind, really changes how species operate. So it's fascinating to work out how islands work and how we can manage them as mm. well as possible. So just as you say that, I'm I'm curious because does that mean that if you change the ecosystem on an island, it's harder to, if, if we're impacting it, is it making a bigger impact or a smaller impact if you also don't have predatory species on there? Yeah, that yeah. That is so- a naive question. No, it's, it's not. It's it's a fundamental question, really, about how islands work. Uh, because we are missing some elements, and because it is bounded, so it doesn't have the influence in the same way that mainland ecosystems do. So we we don't have that continual sort of feedback or release of of, of populations uh, in, in the same way that the mainland does. So the fact that Phillip Island now is free of foxes, mm. you know, we've had foxes completely removed from the island, which is just an extraordinary um, feat. It's, it's the largest island in the world that has had foxes removed from it. And that fundamentally changes the dynamic of the species that are present on the island. So uh, we're trying to understand what, what the implications of that are and the opportunities that arise from having foxes removed. I mean, just think about the Australian native species that we have and how many are threatened by foxes. Mm. Uh, you can see some of the potential, particularly for threatened species. You know, what a wonderful opportunity that is for for those wildlife and for you know, the community to embrace that, mm. be part of that, that experience of, you know, yet again, having a native species running around and being yeah. dominant in the system. That's it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Well done in 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 that achievement. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm gonna introduce our second guest now or get her to introduce herself. Um because and I just love your 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 blurb on on the Island oh, Arcs symposium which says Jessica McKelson swapped primates for penguins. And that seems like 180 degrees um, change yes. in, in focus, but sounds like a marvellous one. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so Jessica McHelson, um, I'm the Conservation Manager for Philip Island Nature Parks. Uh, primarily my role is around um, strategic you know, development and making sure that our entire you know, land that we manage um, you know, is resilient and adaptive and we have, you know, the science that and evidence that make sure that what we do um, is led very well and the decision-making that we make along the way um, protects not only our shearwaters and penguins but, you know, the entirety of the habitat here. Yeah, a bit of a unique background. <laughs> I, my background uh, and passion is working with primates. Um, I spent quite a bit of time overseas over up to six years, probably the last 25 years really working in Indonesia 
um, and, and around Southeast Asia and really looking at different, um, once again, conservation models, the primate being the orating with backgrounds working with great apes um, and using them as a flagship species and how we can protect habitat, how we can you know, ensure that these populations survive long term and how do we engage, more importantly, local community. Um, I did work six years full-time both in North Sumatra and Archie working with primates well, and then I went to West Kalimantan, worked in swamp forest and <laughs> a bit of a change uh, and worked with a local community there against an illegal gold mining firm um, and tried to give them their land rights back, which consequently two years when I was back in Australia, they did get that. So oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, learned a lot of lessons and I thought at the time that Australia really needs support. We have our own issues in land management. Um, we have so many species that are going extinct or are threatened with extinction and I really felt that what I've learned with some of the best um, strategists and um, scientists internationally I could bring back here. Yeah. So I did move uh, from... Indonesia back to Australia nearly five years ago and I uh, learned, yeah, it was able to take on this opportunity and bring in, I suppose, a different look, direction that over the next 30 years we have something solid we can work towards and adapt and build resilience into what we do um, and this is where we are today and I must admit at the time I wasn't I'm not the technical expert, and I certainly am not on penguins or shearwaters, but I have an amazing team of like Duncan and the like that help guide me along the way and ensure that the direction that we can sort of work with our local community and ensure that, you know, Philabala remains one of those key hotspots for wildlife, but also for um, our community to live with wildlife. So we're in a very unique position and I'm quite passionate about that space. <laughs> I can <laughs> hear that. I'm so, yeah. yeah. So tell me, either of you, um, Phillip Island Nature Park, and you just mentioned you've got a 30-year program or plan yeah. to to make this, an, uh, you know, bring it rehabilitated, I guess, to some extent and, and or, or maintain the areas. That you tell me what that might include. But what makes Phillip Island so special? And, you know, obviously we're talking about, she orders and eventually, but what else is what else is there that we need to know about, preserve, protect? I suppose we have the four largest populations of species that exist in the world that are currently oversea and managed. So we've got Australian fur seals, largest colony of Australian fur seals, the largest colony of little penguins, largest colony of short-tailed shearwaters. And more recently, the largest population of eastern barred bandicoots. Okay. So, you know, you think about Melbourne, a city of over 4 million people, that, you know, Phillip Island's only two hours away, and here we have this incredible ecosystem and um, species right on our doorstep. And a lot of people are unaware of that. And they come to the island for a number of events. One of the, the great things about the island is we have, you know, one of the best surf reserves in the world. Um, so we've got, you know, so like many you know, exciting natural and, you know, mermaid activities. We've got like a piece of the Grand Prix. 
Um, and it, it's all on this little island and surrounding that is this incredible ecosystem. And I think that's really special. And we're so lucky um, internationally to have that on our doorsteps. Mm. I think it also is a, a space where all of these amazing things can happen. So we've got that island ecosystem and we can manage that system quite closely and manage the threats to the wildlife. But the really important thing is we've got people living in this ecosystem. It's their backyards and their businesses and their farms and and all of that. And we've got visitors coming as well. We over 2 million visitors would come each year, um, pre-COVID, of course, but yet it's this amazing demonstration site where people can experience what it's like to have wildlife around them in a really positive way and you know, engage with them and feel what it's like to actually have wildlife in their lives again. And yeah. it's a it's a rare opportunity that we we feel privileged that we can could share. Mm. So you, I've just been writing a, a paper um, with the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance about the values of the night environment and it's only something that we're really starting to tap into and I think you, you've just described it perfectly that it's, yes, okay, there might be an economic stimulus with tourism opportunities, et cetera, but there is that real beautiful quality that a community can share and be proud of their own backyard literally. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, yeah, yeah, be proud of and have that ownership. But it is, it's theirs. It's their special place, a place that they have a real sense of place for. Mm. And they can experience that and share that, the love of that experience. It's yeah. pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about how the community got involved with this recent campaign and what you were aiming to achieve by talking about the migration of shearwaters and and actually what the process is for the shearwater itself, what's happening over this time. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe I'll start with what the shearwaters are doing yep. and then how that links in with the campaign because and they're obviously integrally linked. So short-tail shearwater, for those who don't know what it is, it's, it's a, a seabird. It's a bit like a, an albatross with but small It's a dark grey-brown colour with a, about a one-metre wingspan and about 500 grams in weight. So it's uh, a relatively um, medium-sized uh, type of petrol. Sadly, it spends. <laughs> they're actually not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> they're do flavour and, and I can attest to that having, having tried it. It's a traditional... Uh, harvested uh, product for the First Nations peoples in the region of, of the Bass, um, the Bass Strait region in Tasmania, uh, but it's 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 our most abundant seabird as well in Australia. And what's amazing about it is it actually travels the globe looking for the most productive waters around the world. And so for that, it needs cold oceans, which are oxygen-rich, and 
it needs lots of light. And when you've got light and oxygen-rich waters, the waters are teeming with life, and that's what mm-hmm. the shearwaters are looking for. Lots of you know, the, the small fish and the krill that these birds consume, they're looking for where that's most abundant in the world, and they've got an incredible ability to fly to find those rich waters. So, so in the southern... Can I just ask, when you say light... Do you mean light as in sunlight during the day and they could, sorry, I just know nothing about ocean, <laughs> oceanography yeah. really or, 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 yeah, but, but are you saying that they need the, 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 the daylight to, to, to find their, or is it that they're looking for it with moonlight and starlight similarly to, you know, no. No, I mean it's sunlight which provides the energy for the food supply. Okay. So, okay. So we're just talking about the primary productivity of the oceans. So the, all the, the algae and things that grow in the oceans just naturally, that's part of the, the ecosystem, which is the basis for the food chain okay. in the marine environment. And so summer is going to be the best time to have the most light, of course. And mm-hmm. so in the summer in the southern hemisphere, the shearwaters are down here. And when it's summer in the northern hemisphere, they switch ends of the globe and make this extraordinary migration, 16,000 kilometres to wow. the other side of the world. Something that we all would like during winter yeah. is to follow the sun. <laughs> That's right. They've got it sussed, haven't they? <laughs> Do they holiday on the way? Do they, you know, they have a off shopping in Singapore and all the rest of it? Or, or, no, it's quite seriously. Do they, or are they like an albatross that they can fly incredibly long Straight they can fly incredibly long, and we've been actually attaching tracking tiny little tracking devices to the birds, so we can follow where they've been. And what we can see from those trackers is that these birds are actually just making a beeline to the other side of the world, so they're not stopping <laughs> anywhere along the way. Mm. In fact, maybe I can run through the 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 year in the life of a shearwater. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so right now. The birds are actually on a migra- their migration to the northern hemisphere. So we're in mid-May at the moment, and that they're heading towards the Sea of Japan. That's their sort of first stop-off point. So, in fact, they haven't touched the the water for most of that journey. Mm, they don't. Wow. They don't touch it at all. It takes them about two weeks to do that journey from the Southern Ocean, actually south of Australia. All, almost all the way down to Antarctica and heading up to the Sea of Japan. Then mm-hmm. once they get there, some of them sort of spend a bit of time there, might be a, a few months. Others move immediately across to the Bering Sea and then up towards the Chukchi Sea, up into the Arctic Circle um, near Alaska. So, you know, right up to the, the, the furthest point you can get to from here, really. <laughs> and they are going to be feeding up on the waters out there. So they actually sit on the water, sleep on the water, feed on the water. They don't have to travel too far once they found nice productive waters mm. and forage from from where they are. But come the start of September, they it's starting to switch from somewhere over there uh, and you know, the days are getting shorter. And, and keeping in mind in the height of summer, they're having... Some, some days of just perpetual sunshine, so mm-hmm. the night mm-hmm. never falls for where sun. they are. Yeah. yeah. But come the start of September, they quite, um, in unison really, it's really quite tightly scheduled, 
they make their way directly from the Bering Sea, from that area around Alaska, straight down to uh, our shores around southeastern Australia. Mm. And they're coming down here to breed. So this is actually the only time when they, uh, when they arrive, it's the only time they actually touch land. The rest of the time, they're always out on the ocean on the water. Amazing. So mm. it is quite extraordinary. It's only the breeding birds that come and touch land as well. So mm. they're coming to our shores. Uh, they build some burrows when they arrive. So they're riding at the end of September, start of October, start renovating burrows, finding their mates, you getting them pretty cosy. Do they mate for life or are they a bit promiscuous? Mm. They they do have um, uh, partners that they will uh, mate with year and again, but they're not they're not for life. They do um, swap partners around. We don't fully know what drives the change in partners, whether it's if they have a successful year of breeding, they might stay with that partner. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we haven't fully untangled that one yet. Okay. But they they do spend a bit of time uh, renovating burrows and peer bonding, doing all of that. By the start of November, they mate, and just uh, just after mating, they go off on what we call the honeymoon trip. And they all head south down towards uh, into the, the Southern Ocean again and to, to forage down there for about two weeks, going right down close towards Antarctica as far as they can get before they, they hit the ice and get too cold. Uh, and then come back to the end of, of November to lay their one single egg. Wow. So they only get one shot at breeding each year, one egg Um only. So if that goes wrong, then it's all over for the year and they have to wait for the for the next year. They don't have another shot of laying that egg. And what's the um the percentage that 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 you know that come out of the egg and they're all happy and healthy? Do they is it is it is it strong or is it you know are they a, a yeah. strong yeah? It is generally pretty strong. So once that egg's egg's laid, and so long as that's laid in the burrows, some of them unfortunately lay them on the surface, which is uh, not ideal, and is they're quickly picked off by various scavenging species. Mm. So that's a bit of a fail. When there is just a, a young bird that hasn't really done uh, been breeding much before, hasn't got much experience. Yeah, we really haven't figured mm. all that out either. But most of them will actually successfully lay that egg in a burrow. And as it turns out, uh, the female that's just laid that egg, you know, she's done a a huge uh, energetic job mm-hmm. there. It's a, it's a really big egg. It's about 85 grams in weight. So if you think about what a, what a chicken egg is that you might get from the supermarket, mm. it's a good size bigger than that for mm. a bird that's smaller than a chicken. So, you know, it's a big investment. Yeah. And and she'll then nick off to go foraging again back down towards Can't Antarctica. Blame her, can so, you? <laughs> no, I don't kill her. She needs a good idea. I don't know how old another few weeks. <laughs> yeah. But he does. So yeah. the, the male, he's, he then incubates that egg for two weeks until she returns and then they swap over mm-hmm. and they do that a few more times um, mm-hmm. while that egg develops. And after about 53 days, that egg is ready to hatch. So we're talking mid-January and then the 
the chip actually grows really quite rapidly from that point. So for a week or two, they might uh, protect that, that young chick, but thereafter, both parents are going foraging down south okay. uh, towards Antarctica. And so again, they're spending 10 days to two weeks feeding down there and bringing back a really rich oily, oil-based uh, food supply for their chicks. And uh, the chick might only get half a dozen feeds or so, mm. but after that, the chick's almost twice the weight of its parents. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. So it's about almost a kilo in weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Hulled in down, trying to keep it nice and warm. And most of those, the eggs reach the point of hatching, and most of those small chicks develop to the point where they're ready to fledge. The, the adults finish feeding the chick by the start of, of April. Mm -hmm. So all the feeds that that chick's going to get, it's got by the, the start of April. The adults then head off and um, actually head south, back down towards Antarctica to to forage and feed up a fuel light for the, the migration they're the about to attempt. Mm -hmm. And they leave the chick behind. The chick's left there for almost a month. Mm. No food. It's just there to convert all those oils and the rich food that has been given. Their baby fat. The, mm. All that baby fat, so much baby <laughs> fat. It's yeah. just extraordinary. And, you know, Fluffy grey down all over it. It's just they this puffball. Yeah, they're very yeah. cute, <laughs> and they're calling the whole time for their parents, and they're not there. Oh. Yeah. You can hear them. <laughs> the parents find it pretty tough, actually. I, I think they feel very harassed when the chicks are calling and calling for food. Yeah, um, you can actually see the adults lining on on the cliff edges, trying to keep their distance from the chicks because the chicks just give me food, give me food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then. Uh, after, by the end of April and at the very start of May, the chicks have converted all that fat into the, the muscles for flight and they swap their feathers over from that down to the, the flight feathers mm -hmm. and they're, all, they're ready to go. And they're, again, quite synchronised. Mm -hmm. At that time, they're, that, that's the time of year that they all head off but they're waiting for the right conditions as well. So that they wait until it's night time so that all of the birds are coming in and out from the colony when it's at night. Mm -hmm. So they don't come in during the day. That's when they'll get picked off by predators. And those, the birds of prey and you know, gulls and, and ravens and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, but the chicks are waiting for good strong winds, particularly ones from the west, to give them that lift to make that first trip on this, the epic journey they're, they're about to undertake. Mm. So while the adults have, have headed down south, by this stage, the adults are again returning up the east coast of Australia, between Australia and New Zealand, heading up towards the Sea of Japan where mm -hmm. we started. And those fledglings are going to join them on that trip north. Mm. So having not fed for probably a month, their first voyage <laughs> is to go to the other side of the world. So, you know, Quite extraordinary that they could do this. And where have they have they done little flights around the backyard, sort of, so to speak? No, They've... not really. No, they they attempt during the time when before the high winds just to exercise their wings, and you might see them out and about, but no, they don't. 
Isn't that amazing? So yeah. That first real trip, you're flying around, yeah. is the very beginning of yeah, the next stop is the Sea of Japan. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ong. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus you said they were synchronized i i, I guess that's in yeah. their development but do they also all just take off on the same night? Pretty much. It is not quite that synchronised. Mm. And we used to say that you could set your clock by when the shear would have, would arrive from their southerly migration. You know, the twenty sixth of September is the day that they'll all return. It's not quite that that tight. And as I was saying with the the fledglings when they're departing, they're, they're waiting for the right winds to come along to give them that lift off, and. It, but it usually happens on it's only a few nights in that period when you get the right conditions. Mm. So within a week, it's all pretty much done and dusted. And if they don't make that trip on those nights which are, are good, uh, the conditions are right for them to go, then they'd miss the boat. And they become what's actually a really important food source for the native uh, predators that, that come to and congregate to, to feed on these, mm-hmm. these fledglings that are never going to make it. Yeah, I suppose that's where we lead into probably money about the campaign and what we've been yeah. able to do around our rescue yeah. in the museum. Uh, obviously, Duncan's explained that she waters are you know quite rich and oily, so um, they are attracted to light. And during that time, so they are synchronised. So after Easter is when our team really starts to focus on. How do we minimise the number of um, shearwater fledglings that are being striped by Carlin's vehicles are our biggest risk yeah. or attracted to? Just catch you on that. You said Easter. Yeah. Is that yeah. because of the full moon or is it? No, it's just one of the timings that works well for us. That, okay. You know, right. A lot of the tourists have left <laughs> and then we start to set up, you know, obviously we know that it's just one of those points in our calendar that we know that. Right, it's time to start preparing um, for the fledglings to depart. So, you know, they are attracted to light, and of course, light pollution is one of their biggest, um, what well, one of one of the threats that they face on their journey, and one of the threats that you know from that they are attracted to in their immediate backyard, where you know they're obviously living, is on Phillip Island. So. What we do during this period of time is um, 
we set up some traffic management and we know where the you know the key hotspots are on the island. And we try to uh, minimise the amount of strikes or clean up the roads. They are quite oily, so they are actually, number one, a threat to humans when they're driving because they provide like oily roads and it's actually quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. So our role during that time is to um, remove as many birds that are alive and give them a second chance by placing them back in the colony or remove the dead roadkill that may happen um, during the evening. So we do that early morning and we do it um, during the evening as well. And this year is quite different because um, we were able to get some support to really maximise our opportunity to engage the community. And we have a very good um, community uh, support in this program but we wanted to really um, maximise it and, and get the community to own a lot more of, you know, um, turning off their lights and participating in something that they can proactively do. And our goal was to get around 25 businesses to support um, in that flight migration path to support turning off their lights for up to 10 days. Um, and we were able to achieve 24 main businesses, which is fantastic. Yeah. But more importantly, we had an online um, gathering, which so this sort of um, perpetuated in results, like people would turn off their lights um, during that period of time. We had the schools across the island in the community. They'd gone home and turned their lights off. So we think that all that, um, you know, con- it does contribute to, you know, giving that fledgling the best chance to go without any man-made light pollution as such. So if, um, they're, they're if there is to. light there, they're attracted mm. to that and they're not they're not taking off on their longer journey or Yeah, they're distracted by say, for example, we have a bridge that connects us to mainland um and you know, regional roads, Victoria, no, they, they give us permission to turn those lights off ten days during that year. Um, because they're attracted to that rather than following, you know, obviously the sunlight essentially. Well, yeah, we, we don't really understand what, what it is about artificial light or light in general that is attracting them, but it does attract them to land on on the ground, which is a you know a, a, a terrible thing for a shield she would have fledgling to do. Um, you know, it's it's really seems to be heading off on its migration. Yeah, but by landing on the ground, it often that's in areas it's associated with roads often because of. Street lights, car headlights, uh, but building lights, of course. Yeah. So particularly those the big flooded uh, areas on buildings that might be there for the safety of humans, but it's certainly not for the safety of, of wildlife. And I think that's where this campaign's fantastic, is that it's making people aware that we're sharing this landscape with these special birds. Yeah. And they can do their part for it. It's only a short period of time, uh, but really see the the, the benefit that mm. they can can give the birds by turning those lights off uh, at this this vulnerable time for the birds. And I think, Marty, you know, even though we do have a large population of shearwaters, um, it doesn't mean that this population won't crash in the future. Mm. And you know, we've got to do everything we can as we evolve and live with wildlife. We also have to understand what some of those 
you know, more localised threats might be, and we have an opportunity to change and participate and make a difference. So whilst people think, oh, turning my lights off, that's not going to contribute, it may contribute and it's that one thing that everyone can do proactively to try and, you know, over 10 days in the year, try and support, you know, the best opportunity chance for these fledglings to go. Um, so what we've done this year with our uh, campaign is be able to measure that and we hope in the future to continue this and broaden the depth um, of this program you know, to other communities that are interested in getting involved as well up the east coast and down on the island. Mm. We believe light pollution is an, is a is a threat for not only shearwaters but other wildlife species. And um, you know, we want to do the best that we can for yeah. this species to exist with us into the future. And I guess on top of that, it's actually one thing that we can quite easily do. <laughs> it, it's a very tangible yeah. thing that. It's, it's not hard to fix, is it? No. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I do a lot of public talks to schools and, and special interest groups and and I talk about, you know, how do, how do we solve the issue of light pollution and, you know, really this, this is turn the light off. Yeah, but, it's, just, it's yeah. just that. <laughs> but people, and, and you might go into talking about colour temperature and curfews and all the other bits and things that, that actually make it more human centric and not easy to to um, include. But I often think that people think it's just too easy. You know, yeah. they want a harder they want me to go into a more in-depth way yeah. of doing it. And it's really not that hard. Yeah. Um, I mean we've also, you know, been able to, you know, work with our local councils and our road authorities to put in like, you know, uh, wildlife friendly light which is kind of low light pollution level lighting and stuff um across the island so i think as a community we're doing so much and we're a great example and I, you know this is the next step this yeah. campaign to really say that you can make that difference towards that and when you walk out at night time when there's no lights on especially for the rangers that are going around patrolling and making sure you know picking up birds yeah. They thought it was fantastic. They're like, it was dark. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I think just appreciating that you can, you know, step outside and see that and, you know, that we have an amazing um, place where without lights that it actually is quite beautiful. Yeah. So that makes me think of two things. One is actually three. <laughs> what it, I'd love to hear the feedback from the general population and, and actually see that documented so that, you know, yeah. you're capturing that. Because if it's anything like the experience that we we ran a Guinness World Record Challenge where we asked people to go out and stand on their veranda at night and turn all the lights off, and we had pages of people writing to us saying, I've never done this before. I've never stood outside and looked at the stars with my child. You know, my child and I were crying. It was so beautiful. You know, all these sorts mm. of comments. And I think that experience of being in the night is really valuable learning. Um, and I guess that sort of then takes me on to, because I know we've got a shearwater colony not far from where I live and there's yeah. Lockhow Island and all these other areas. Mm. How can we use your model with those communities to 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 broaden this? Have you got any plans for that or are you, you know, is it yeah. just... Is is, yeah, is Phillip Island enough? <laughs> oh no, no. We we are, are planning on providing a report that will be you know 
open. And obviously for everyone that wants to get involved with this campaign, it'd be fantastic. You know, we've run it the first time this year. Even though we've done so much stuff previously, it's the first time we've really engaged with community and got some um, baseline data, essentially. Mm. And we're able to marry that up with our rescue program. Um, and what we hope to do is influence and extend that. So we're more than willing to share that data and also you know, build upon that with other experience that other communities may have. Um, it would be fantastic to see the Australasian community get involved with this program mm. um, and obviously other shearwater colonies, you know, get those communities to get involved as well. It was so easy. Um, we're happy mm. to look at those opportunities to partner with like-minded communities that have mm. shearwaters in their backyard and share and grow together. Yeah, I think... I think that's the the key to all of this. We can't do all we can't do it in isolation. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's a globe. <laughs> so. It is, and I think it also you know each community has its own approach to doing things too, but that each of the communities can have that ownership of how they want to go about yeah. this. We can have a, a framework of you know how we've gone about it. It's an example of how it can be done and can be done you know, really easily. It was easy, and you know really successfully, uh, but in other communities can see it's it's not that tricky. So I, I guess I do have a, another question, though, and and where I was heading in my mind was with safety. You know, that we've always got this argument, well, we need light for safety or perceived safety anyway. So I guess my question's two parts. One is, is there any evidence to say that there was more or less crime over this period? And the other bit was um, how did you have to persuade the local community to turn lights off? Was there a, was there a pushback around that? You know, we've, we've come used to having light in our environment. I suppose we don't have any evidence on crime mm-hmm. on the, about the lights. Well, but we certainly, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we certainly had a very positive uptake that people were, you know, participating in this campaign. So... We were thrilled. Actually, it, it you know, it was, but it exceeded my expectations and a lot of the other expectations from our team. Um, so in terms of crime work, I can't answer that one, but we did get a lot of positive feedback around this program. Um, and then the second question was in relation to, sorry. Initially, the, was there any pushback from people saying, oh, no, we've got to have our lights on, you know, we can't, we, you know. No, we no? made it very, um, and I think that comes in because we do educate the community. I know Duncan does a lot of um, keynote talking and we put out localised press releases around shearwaters and people do live with this species. They can go for walks and see their burrows quite easily. So they are aware it's not, and it, it's not something that they are not aware of and they do know, um, being that our road authority also for, for for the last five years since I've been here have been really proactive in turning the bridge lights off for this period of time. So, for you know, we've already had that, I suppose, continuity and support. It's more extending that, and I think people are just really excited to do something and get involved with the species. Mm. One of the challenges hasn't so much been people not wanting to turn lights off. I think there has been that, oh, this is something I can, something I can do. Mm. Uh, this is tangible. I did, 
it marries up with what how special I think the birds are in this landscape. Probably more the challenge has just been the, the systemic nature of it. We have lighting set up in certain ways, and for some some places, it's actually just difficult to get that changed, mm. and it requires an electrician to come in. We just haven't set it up in the first place to make it easy to adapt. And, you know, just from first principles, you know, when you're developing uh, a side, you know, a, a building, just having it easy enough to turn these things off with the flick of a switch, you know, that that's actually been more of a problem yeah. than people's mm-hmm. desire to turn them off. Yeah. And, you know, that's, which was a fascinating thing for me to, to observe. Yeah, yeah you, you, I know I worked, I was the manager of Sydney Observatory for a while and part of my role was to talk about lighting management of built new buildings particularly or if there was a change of sign and of course you know every new building that went up had a new and bigger brighter led mm-hmm. wattage and the request to have the the capacity or ability to turn it down or off was incredibly hard yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or exactly if you did have it you still then you then you know you might have somebody in the building that knows that for three years and then they move on and that intellectual property on where that light switch was <laughs> seems to go with them. So, yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. But but it, but in terms of overall, like we were, we're really happy with what we've been able to achieve. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not just for shearwaters, it's for other wildlife and species as well. So I think um, during that 10 days, I think all wildlife got to, to feel like what it was like not to have lights on in some of their key prime habitat areas. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's something that we take for granted and I think um, it was a really great way to engage and bring the community to body, um our backyard. be really and interesting to see if you could thing. extend that, that period mm. to have it more frequently through the year or at other times just to, and, and, and yeah. you know, once you change a few habits, it's really, it's easier to adopt and adapt um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and as we were saying, it, it's great for people to experience what a dark night actually mm-hmm. feels like, and then get to see the stars in in full glory. I think we're very privileged where we are that we we do get some spectacular nights when mm-hmm. you know the stars showing off, uh, and that's something that those you know, ten day periods just to to be able to see what that looks like and. Mm-hmm. The experience areas where there it is just dark and it's you it's invigorating. We should really be inviting people down from Melbourne during that period to experience it too. So it's yeah, or wherever. Right. Anyway, I think the high the high winds also includes people staying indoors, which has been great too. <laughs> that that kind of works well, but um, yeah, it's certainly an experience. I know that our team we. We have teams um, patrolling through for two weeks, three weeks over that period. So just making sure that the roads are safe for people to drive on and people slow down and, you know, that we have opportunity to collect the birds before they, um, you know, become roadkill. And that's, you know, a lot of people think that we're doing it from um, animal welfare. That is well part of it. But the main part of why we do it is road safety. It's um, and also, if you leave a lot of roadkill in areas that are you know don't have you know 
foxes, for example, it provides an enticing um, food source for foxes to come over and also feed. So we want to make sure that we clean up these areas to stop any predators as well. So, And at the same time, try to save as many birds as we can. Yeah. Gives them that second chance to make that extraordinary maiden voyage that they undertake. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And I think I hope we've covered everything and I really look forward to seeing this this campaign going on again next year. Please get me involved. Let's see if we can get Love some to. people involved as well and share this around. And um, thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I've been a pleasure, Moni. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.